this week on the Back Table Podcast. In our emergency department, our main hospital, the triage is staffed by either one of the ER attending physicians or an advanced practitioner. And any of them, whomever is in the triage area, can sound the alert. Let's say the frontline provider is unsure if it's acute limb and they curbside one of us. We have enacted the alert because the, the importance of the alert is to, again, to expedite the care. But as we're monitoring this prospectively, when it gets sent out through the paging system, it all also gives us that little reminder of, let's sure this patient is going into our research prospectively. Let's make sure we have eyes on them so that we can report on our clinical outcomes. And we've all embraced Sabine, the endo first approach. And so if their anatomy and their prior surgical history, if it allows for an endo approach, again, we're embracing that use of penumbra and the computer assisted vacuum thrombectomy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all of our episodes online on any platform you prefer, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or directly through our website, backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Penumbra's Lightning Flash is the only computer-assisted vacuum thrombectomy device on the market to address venous and pulmonary thrombus. Featuring Lightning's latest microprocessor, Lightning Flash uses both pressure and flow-based algorithms to detect thrombus and blood flow. The Lightning Flash catheter is made with Max-ID hypotube technology, allowing an inner diameter similar to large-bore catheters while maintaining a low profile. When it comes to thrombus management, Lightning Flash is designed for speed, safety, and simplicity. Product availability varies by country. For the complete Penumbra IFU summary statements, please visit peninc.info slash risk. That's P-E-N-I-N-C dot info slash risk. Now back to the show. I'm Sabine as your host today, and I'm happy to welcome Dr. Charles Bailey, who is a vascular surgeon and big man on campus as the director of the PAD and limb salvage program at the University of South Florida. Welcome to the show, Charles. Sabine, afternoon. Really appreciate the invite. Uh, looking forward to the discussion. For sure. Now, we've discussed acute limb ischemia on the show before, episodes 118 and 315 for our listeners, but we haven't talked about this really neat program that you've created about the limb alert. We're going to delve into that too in a little bit, but first, can you tell a little bit more about yourself and how you landed up in Florida? So I'm, I'm a Michigander natively born and raised in the Detroit area and education and training just took me to the South. So I went from, you know, college and medical school in Michigan to Atlanta for residency training and then subsequently to here in Tampa for my fellowship in vascular. And I think like a lot of people in medicine, you get to the point where maybe you're tired of moving or you build good bonds and mentorship, right? In the places you train. And I spent the last now 12 years here in the Tampa market. That's awesome. And can you describe a little bit more about your practice? Do you focus on endovascular? Do you do more open or is kind of a mix of both? Yeah. So here at the University of South Florida and Tampa General Hospital, I'm one of the vascular and endovascular surgeons. So board certified, fellowship trained in vascular surgery. And my practice mix currently is, I'll call it all arterial. So it's a mix of carotid, aortic, peripheral arterial disease. And as you mentioned in the intro, you know, I've been put in charge of our limb preservation and peripheral arterial disease program. So I'd say the bulk of my clinical practice is managing both acute and chronic arterial conditions. Got it. Yeah. BMOC, as I called you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And 
at the University of South Florida is who treats acute and chronic uh, limb patients? Is it all vascular surgery or is it a mix between vascular surgery, IC, IR, um, and how does that all work? So I think here at USF and Tampa General, what's really nice about our health institution is it's a real blend of the university practice, which I'm part of. The Tampa General Medical Group has its own independent practice and we're merged in many aspects. And we also have a private practice component to the community. And so for peripheral arterial disease and the chronic side, you get a blend, largely, largely vascular surgery, but a blend of vascular surgery our solid interventional radiology group, and some local skilled interventional cardiologists. So it's a mix. For what we're going to talk about today when it comes to the acute limb, that is 99% our vascular surgery group, but we do have a fantastic radiology group we work with from time to time, patient to patient. That's awesome. And how many people are in your practice? So we have a principal group of seven vascular surgeons Okay, and the the interventional radiology group, which again helps us with our complex aortic and our peripheral arterial disease acute limb patients, is a a mix of around seven IR docs as well. That's awesome. So it's a good mix. You've got kind of a hybrid practice with with academic and and private. Like it's it's the dream. So that's great. Very collaborative, which is yeah. really important. That's amazing. Yeah. So acute limb ischemia. We're not really going to go into technique today, but we're going to be talking about everything leading up to the technique, and then just talk about technique a little bit. <laughs> but how acute is acute limb ischemia? So by definition, it's 14 days. And as you and I know, and a lot of the people in our audience here, it's a largely a clinical diagnosis. So the patients who present with, you know, from a few minutes or hours to up to 14 days of any of these classic ischemic symptoms, right? We all learn in medical school, the six P's of ischemia, the pulselessness and the pale, et cetera. I've dubbed a seventh one, which is prior vascular interventions because the seventh P, right? Because a large percentage of our acute limb are people who have had an endovascular or an open rebast that has subsequently failed, right? And so largely a clinical diagnosis for acute limb ischemia and that 14 days is something we learned from one of the original randomized trials, right? That catheter-directed approaches, catheter-directed thrombolysis was more effective if it presented within 14 days of these symptom onsets. And so that's kind of set the benchmark of from day zero to day 14, if you have these symptoms, we, we consider you an acute limb. Definitely. You know, a big question people always have is, can an acute limb ischemic patient, can you wait overnight or is it something you have to do? Like, is it like a stroke? or a STEMI where you got to do pretty, you know, stat? I think the the question of when and can we wait and should we wait is something that we're trying to assess. And I think it's something that's in need of really reappraisal. When you think of acute limb ischemia and you look back over the last 20 years since the randomized trials, the key metrics we look at, mortality, amputation-free survival, limb salvage, in this, you know, endovascular revolution really haven't changed. And I know you and I and others who treat the conditions probably aren't providing poor care, but maybe it's you know that notion of, can we wait? Does that really mean, should we wait? And so that's one topic we've hoped to answer, and it's what's really driving our, you know, our hospital-specific protocol for these patients. And especially with the change of technology, I mean, five years ago, really we had one option uh, in an endovascular approach, and now we have so many. When you get the call about a ischemic patient, what are some of the key questions you ask? So the way our 
protocol for acute limb is set up. You know, it's a system-wide protocol. At the point of triage, it's asking those salient clinical questions. How many days have your symptoms been present? And really keying in on those, you know, the six P's of ischemia and the seventh P of prior intervention. So it's a clinical diagnosis. So we're really trying to pin down as best we can, you know, do these symptoms really fit with someone who has acute limb ischemia? Because there are many conditions, musculoskeletal, lumbosacral disease, even some chronic conditions that can mirror it. So it's really honing in on those six P's of acute ischemia, the seventh P of prior intervention, and then really, really as best we can trying to pin down, is this really an acute within 14 days of onset symptom? Sure. Yeah. And then what about clinically, you know, to kind of tell you how soon you have to treat the patient? Is there any specific, you know, things you ask the provider? And then a follow-up to that is, what if you don't trust the provider that, that's talking to you? Oh, I'm going to work backwards on this. So <laughs> um, patients are not always the most reliable, maybe not the most medically literate or tuned into healthcare. And we get a lot of frontline providers that may just have never dealt with a vascular patient or an acute limb condition. And so when you look back at the algorithms that are published in the management of acute limb ischemia that break down after that initial assessment, the Rutherford classification we use, whether it's a, a 1, a 2A, 2B, or a 3, no algorithm and no table really specifies when you should intervene. We all kind of understand that a class 1 has time to wait. It's more of a subcritical, more of a chronic. You have time to evaluate and assess the patient before you revascularize, but even that doesn't have a timestamp. And the 2As and the 2Bs, we think of them as marginally and immediately threatened, you know, respectively. There's not really a timestamp. And I think if you surveyed, you know, 100 vascular interventionalists, regardless of specialties, and you ask them when they intervene on a 2A, for example, so someone who presents with acute limb ischemia, but without any motor deficits and maybe a slight sensory change, you'll get a hundred different answers as to when they, when they respond. And so we've embraced this, again, learning from the lessons of stroke and STEMI. We're embracing this. Everyone gets treated rapidly, regardless of class, so long as it's safe for the patient. And if you look back, Sabine, at the stroke and STEMI protocols, Time is brain and time is myocardium. And we know with acute limb that delaying care and or delaying that time to revast does increase the risks of ischemia and reperfusion injury, which is a systemic insult. Our patients come in in kind of dire straits. And so waiting, in our opinion, our clinical practice experience, waiting to revast does lead to higher subsequent you know, post-intervention outcomes. And so we just you come in, you're going to the OR as quickly and safely as we can get you there. That's great. And we all know about the complications like bleeding during the procedure or something like that or a groin complication, but you kind of alluded to it, compartment syndrome. Why does compartment syndrome occur and how often do you see it in these patients? You know, our practice here in our community, we have such a large catchment area and I'm sure it's not too different from many parts of Southern California where we are taking patients in transfer from facilities, you know, 10, 20, 30, 100 miles away. And you, you add in that time to revast or time to care with maybe a cloudy history from the patient or, or an uncertain timeline from the referring doctor or the triage physician. 
that you best you can, you might think someone, for example, is a 2A, but you put in these little doubtful, you know, these little seeds of doubt of, well, was it really that long? Is this really when it happened? And, and we found that many patients are actually more ischemic than their initial pre, uh, clinical presentation would suggest. And so compartment syndrome, you know, we see it not infrequently. We are definitely not a program who sees it in a delayed fashion after a revast because we are very pro-fasciotomy for the advanced ischemic states, the two Bs, and decompressing that compartment. And the reason we've embraced that, Sabine, is there is plenty of data to show you that if you miss a compartment syndrome, or if you have to do a fasciotomy later and there is dead muscle at the time, the limb loss rates are, yeah, it's, the limb loss rates are through the roof and the amputations is not 100%, but it's really close. So, so compartment syndrome and being really, I guess, as accurate as you can in diagnosing that ischemic state up front. And if there's any doubt as to how they ischemic, maybe level them up from a 1 to 2A or 2A to B, erring on the side of it's worse, has really helped prevent you know, limb loss by, again, trying to be an ac as accurate as possible and really embracing a rapid approach to revask and prophylactic fasciotomies as needed. That's great. You know, one of the things that we see too is that these patients are way more ischemic than they present, just like you said. And combination of poor history or, or even a provider just saying, yeah, the foot's cold. Like uh, there's not that much history, especially in the community, right? When you look at that angiogram, you get really surprised. I mean, it's, it takes like like 20 seconds for some contrast to get down to the to a reconstituted pedal or something like that. And you're just like, wow, how is this foot even how are they, how is it still intact or have yeah. any motor sensory function? What are some clinical signs you look for that tell you that it's not salvageable? Are there any legs that you just say, okay, we're going to go for an amputation rather than revask? So the, the class three in the Rutherford, you know, those patients who present with a really a, almost a paralyzed, paretic, contracted, fixed leg from a prolonged ischemia. Those are really hard to salvage, right? When ner nerves are very um, resilient, and in even someone who presents with a foot drop uh, in an earlier stage of ischemia, they can recover with time. But you will have these patients where the ischemic insult is just so severe or so prolonged that they're insensate. They have a fixed ankle, a fixed knee, a contracture. They may already have skin changes, blistering, modeling, etc. And the, the challenge with those patients is, yes, you and I and others, we could put them through a procedure, we could open up a blood vessel, but you're not going to save the leg. And, and, and even if it's a healthy person without a big, you know, burden of comorbidities, you know, the damage is done and time matters and muscles and nerves are, are resilient, but to a point. And so it's that class three group. And you have to temper that with a lot of these patients are not the young and healthy athletes of the world. They're men and women with a high burden of comorbidities. And so revascularizing re those advanced stages is just going to lead to a greater ischemic reperfusion injury, a greater you know, risk of adverse systemic events to the brain, the heart, the lungs, kidneys, et cetera. And so sometimes it's that very difficult decision of, well, we could revask, but yes, Mrs. Jones here with advanced heart failure, right? And a history of Yes, you won't like the after effects of a revas. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. 
one of the questions I sometimes use, my partner taught me when I when I started is, can the patient push down on their foot like a gas pedal? Like if I if they can do that, uh, you know, if I get the call overnight, I kind of feel a little bit more at ease that I can do this in the morning. Or if they're really losing that sensation, that's something I'm like, okay, or they're use, losing that motor function. That's uh, you know pretty telltale. And if it's completely gone and it's modeled, then you know, there, there you go. You got your class three patient. And I think it's important to don't look at the foot or the leg in isolation, compare it to the other side. Cause we see, you know, an elderly infirm, someone coming from a rehab facility or someone who may have not been out exercising on a daily basis. Maybe they have weakness to both legs and what you're seeing on one side might be the same that you have on the unaffected limb. And, and it might give you a better understanding. You may not be as concerned about their ischemia to the clearly affected, clearly ischemic leg if they have the same chronic, you know, muscular weakness. And same as you, I have them push down, gas pedal on a clutch, not that anybody uses a clutch anymore, and move both feet and assess that. And and I think the other kind of pearl I'll throw in there, Sabine, is motor motor function matters, sensory function matters, skin changes, you know, but in that ischemic progression, the last thing people have is muscular tenderness. And so I've taught my residents and fellows, you're examining someone, they may look like a one or two A, something that's mild, you have a little bit of time, but if their calf muscle, if their anterior compartment, or if it's a thigh, if it's a thigh ischemia, if their muscular compartments are, are tender, in my, in my experience, they get a level up in their ischemic state. You know, so if your calf is tender when you come in and you're a two A based on your foot exam, but your calf is tender, yeah, you're a two B. That is a sign of more advanced ischemia than the patient is showing you. That's good. That's a pro tip, actually. Yeah, that's a, some you know, the the tenderness. I mean, sometimes it's, it's pretty severe. You'll see you just squeeze the cow, and they just scream, and you're like, whoa! And and of course, the foot's cold and everything. That's that's going to revast. So speaking of revasking, you know, a couple traditionally, what would you be doing? Um, is it open surgical before the advent of some of these new technologies? So we practice a blend. You know, our patient population is such that our average PAD patient is not the first time SFA stent or the first time femoral right? As the academic institution here in Central Florida, in my practice speaks to this, it's third time bypass, fourth time bypass, right? Hostile anatomy. And so we see a lot of patients where just the, they're simple, their anatomy, where their surgical scars are, prior fasciotomy may not lend themselves to a technically feasible endo approach. So we still have to rely on that open skill set. But we have really, as medical you know, records will show, we've really uh, embraced an endo first approach. And historically, if you look at you know, VA and Medicare data sets in the last two, three decades, we've had this increasing use of endovascular technologies for acute limb without the expected improvement as we would think or hope to see in outcomes, right? Mortality and amputation-free survival have kind of been a stagnant flat line, which is, right, allowed us to question whether we're doing the right things up front, whether the technologies we've had historically. But we've embraced all, and I think you, in treating acute limb, regardless of your specialty, you have to have access to all those tools because it's not one tool for all jobs. And you know, as a vascular surgeon, we're lucky because we're trained in all techniques, but I have friends and colleagues who are radiologists and interventional cardiologists where this is a big part of their practice at their institution. 
And so if that's you, you just have to foster those relationships with someone who can, you know, wield cold steel if needed when the, when the endotherapies aren't effective. Yeah. I have to say it's, you know, I, I get, I sometimes scrub in with, uh, our vascular surgeon on, on some cases just to watch. And, uh, there's nothing like seeing that Fogarty balloon being pulled back and these like Tootsie Roll clots are coming out and then you just get this fountain of blood. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable and way different than the black and white endovascular approach when you see it, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, as a vascular surgeon, acute limb and, and limb threatening conditions is what got me interested in the specialty to begin with, but surgery may not be the answer. Right when you look at hi- historical numbers of open thrombectomy and open embolectomies, and and what many surgeons and the old guard might see as the traditional status quo gold standard, it's imperfect and it still has that open technique of mortality rates of twenty percent in a year, amputation rates up to twenty five percent, with data that is not as promising or supportive as some of the newer endo first approaches we have yeah speaking of how has the technology changed you know and, and how has that changed your it sounds like your practice has become endo first a lot and, and maybe due to technology so as someone who really thinks about acute limb ischemia a lot i've bought into the idea wholeheartedly because i've seen it in clinical practice that debulking matters and we all know this right the principle of acute limb is get the clot out restore perfusion and historically, when you look back at the randomized trials between open and endo, a lot of people interpret that as being clinically equivalent. That's 30-year-old data with one, one endo device being a lytic catheter using urokinase that nobody uses yeah, anymore. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> right? And so, again, learning from stroke and semi and other centers who have developed fast-track protocols in managing these acute conditions, we've developed a fast-track protocol for acute limb. And the cornerstone of that is using some of these newer technologies, especially aspiration thrombectomy and the computer-assisted thrombectomy from Penumbra to rapidly debulk, restore flow, show you the culprit lesion, allow you to fix it if you find something. But also, you know, if it's someone with an advanced multi-level disease, you know, doing this, you know, newer techniques with the aspiration thrombectomy and embracing that technology has allowed us to really effectively not only debulk, but show us the landscape, show us what the underlying culprit lesion is, and allow us then to make the best decision for how to treat that. Because it may not be it may not be an endo solution, depending upon someone's anatomy. But if you've debulked them and gotten them out of the woods, then gives you time to be a little more thoughtful in what's the right choice to fix them. Exactly. You can restore that flow quicker, even if you have to lice afterwards, debulking it, you know, obviously makes sense. You'll 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 have less clot to to disintegrate and break up, you know, even in the uh, last eight years, I mean, I've seen so much changes with, with suction thrombectomy. I mean, back in the day we had, you know, indigo, I mean, cat six was thought as like a big catheter and went all the way down to cat three. And now with this computer assisted, what, what does that mean? I mean, how does that work uh, in your practice? So when you think of the endo approaches we have for acute limb, And for those of us who embrace the endo first, it's embracing this idea that you want to debulk 
restore flow, open up pathways, preserve the collateral beds. And if you're going to take the end of a first approach, I think we all have to temper that with not only providing what is a safe and durable and effective treatment, but also a therapy that has the lowest potential risks of complications. And we've all had the thrombolysis patient that developed a retroperitoneal bleed and require, you know, or an intracranial bleed. And then you're kicking yourself the next morning if that was the right choice. And we've all had the patients with some of the other pharmacomechanical devices where distal embolization and instead of preserving those capillary beds, we trash the foot, trash so the to foot, say. Yeah. Right. So so we've really embraced the penumbra and the cat, you know, computer assisted vacuum thrombectomy as the best option for all those reasons, because it allows you a really rapid debulking of all lesions, allows you to minimize the chance of distal embolization. Because if there is a piece of fragment that moves, you can just aspirate it back out, right? And that's a rarity. And also it, you know, really keeps that need for something more risky like thrombolysis in your back pocket. And you'll still have those patients that need an adjunctive therapy like a lysis catheter, if it's a deep tibial occlusion that you just can't aspirate out, or if the foot has a burden of thrombus. So it's really nice to be in about the the device and I'm sure you and I remember days of just putting a catheter in a large syringe and just pulling back on negative pressure and hoping you engage the clot. What's nice about the newest technology, it's really embracing technology, modern tech, augmented intelligence, using a computer assistance to be more effective. And so the device, not to get too much into the nuts and bolts, once you engage the clot on the engine, the aspiration canister you have, audio and visual, you have haptic feedback for when you're aspirating, when you're engaged, when you've cleared the clot, the machine itself will aspirate and, and augment its pressure such that if you have the thrombus stuck, it'll augment its pressure to help rotate it, move it, fragment it like the good old fashioned separators used to do just in a more streamlined manner. So we've really embraced that as our go-to first line apply to anyone who is able approach that's awesome one question i have for you is how do you remember the names um we used to call them cat whatever now it's bolt and there's flash how do you remember the names because <laughs> i'll sometimes tell my i'm like get, get me the cat seven they're like no it's the bolt and i'm like okay <laughs> i don't care what it's called it's easy for us in Tampa because our hockey team is the Tampa Lightning, also known as the Bolts. So so we, we have this natural, the branding, I guess, was built for us. So it's e very easy for us to remember that the, the newest generation is the Bolt 7 using, you know, their Cat 7 aspiration catheter. We have Flash and Lightning. There are lots of products that are really effective on both the arterial and the venous side. Yeah. I just sometimes get confused with the names for us in Cali, you know? <laughs> I think as their product has evolved, the names have gotten a little shorter. So the Bolt is the newest one, which is the one that really embraces on the arterial side that, you know, computer assisted vacuum thrombectomy. And yeah, it's an automated separator, as I like to teach and tell people. That separator was pretty annoying back in the day. I didn't really, I mean, know how to use it except just cause some distal emboli at times. <laughs> I think the uh, the approach to acute limb, if you're going to do an endovascular 
again, not all tools are perfect. Not all tools fit all anatomy. And this rings true for any interventional site, be it heart, peripheral, brain. And I think with all devices, you have to be patient. You have you have to have a broad skill set. And I think with any surgical approach or interventional approach, it's not so much the the act of inflating a balloon or passing a wear catheter that makes these things successful. It's it's the troubleshooting. It's thinking forward, playing chess instead of checkers. And so there's some little tips and tricks I've learned in using the device that have really helped with uh, successful outcomes. I'll just give you one example, not to dive into the weeds too much, you know. But consider the patient who has a thrombosed bypass graft or a thrombosed stent. We all know the failure mechanism for that is intimal hyperplasia, progression of disease, usually on the outflow side. And so one tip that I've, you know, introduced that has led to very successful outcomes is, well, once you get your catheter and your sheath, et cetera, in place, you know, once you've traversed the lesion and you find yourself in healthy blood vessel and you've confirmed that with an angiogram, I do my first one or two passes with the aspiration catheter with the the bolt seven over the wire because it leave it leaves you in place and you know as you and I know and others you know the the most dreadful moment in an endovascular procedure is when you've crossed the lesion you start to intervene and then you lose your wire purchase oh god yeah right it's a nightmare and you can't get back across oftentimes and so I I think that's a a very key step for this aspiration thrombectomy is once you have your wire across maybe just do that first pass over the wire to open up a channel, give yourself a little more wiggle room, a little more breathing room to then do the rest of the procedure. Sure. And then sometimes too, like don't cross that distal outflow cap, use it as kind of a protection. And then, you know, once you think you've cleared a lot of the proximal stuff, then then go ahead and, and break through that. It's something that I do. Yeah. You have to tailor your technique to what you're seeing you in front of you, what the patient is and what their subsequent revask might be. Totally. So speaking of limb alert, now, now you've created this program at University of, of South Florida. What exactly is it? How does it work? And how are people alerted and how has it affected these patients? So when I took over as director of our limb preservation PAD program, one of the first QI projects we dove into was amputation reduction. Okay. And Great. you know, yeah. for any of us treating peripheral arterial disease, it is inevitable you know, if you treat enough patients, if you're doing enough open or endo revascularizations, yes, you're going to have patients that get to the end of the road in their options or present to you an end-stage disease and amputations are inept. When we started looking at our amputation population and really trying to learn from our own historical experience, we found that acute limb ischemia was a large contributor to that. And that message is the same at every major center and anyone who's doing complex vascular disease. So, Again, learning from stroke and STEMI, we sought out to create a standardized protocol, a standardized approach to these patients, whether they were coming in through the emergency department at one of our urgent care centers, through our transfer center, or even in-house on one of the wards or ICUs. And so it's a standardized protocol where if you're a patient presenting with any of the signs of acute limb ischemia, any of those seven Ps, within a two-week time frame, an automated alert is set meaning that the ER, the vascular attending on call, the vascular fellow on call, the OR, the ICU, the IR suite, and our radiology department all receive this text or page alert. 
again, similar to what stroke and STEMI currently Sure. Do. Yeah, exactly. And the goal of that was to let all parties who could potentially be involved, let them know, hey, there's a patient here with an acute surgical condition, get your thoughts in order, expect a phone call, and we will keep your praise of what's going on. And so within that alert process, once the, let's say it's an ER physician, once they sound the alert, vascular is at the bedside in the first few minutes, there is a standard order set that we created to get all the basic labs, a rapid initiation of heparin and IV fluids. Prospectively, we're monitoring other inflammatory markers like CRP and CPK and even troponins at baseline to see if we can help get a better sense of how ischemic these patients actually are. And so it's a standardized alert and all parties involved get notified. And the moment that is set, since we lead the alert process, we as vascular surgeons are then in complete control of which tests get ordered for imaging, where is the patient going for definitive therapy. And so it removes these occurrences of the patient who comes in with acute limb and it isn't recognized. And it's obviously a clinical acute limb and you go to see them, but they're getting a two view of their ankle x-ray, which is completely unnecessary. So it's, it's really trying to expedite that diagnosis and then allow us to expedite the management. I mean, that's, it's so true. You can have like a, a duplex and, and you, you wish you had a CTA, you know, to kind of better define what the aeroiliac inflow looks like or, or other. And, but yeah, with, with your system, you get to, you get to know instantly versus something like in ours, you know, I, I may know about the case or something overnight, or I get notified in the morning or as a delayed diagnosis. And written into the protocol from an imaging standpoint, because it's a clinical diagnosis, but to your point exactly, I mean, you need imaging of their inflow, iliac, their outflow. In the protocol, the only option that providers have for imaging is a CTA with runoff. It's either they, they get a CTA with runoff, and because it's part of a hospital-wide protocol, you know, if you have a stroke patient, an acute limb patient, and a trauma patient, those images take precedence over anyone else waiting in the ER for a stat CTA. So we, so we get to jump the line, but having that preoperative knowledge of what their anatomy is, is really important. And to harken back to something I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of our patients are failed stents and failed bypass grafts. They're failed prior interventions that we often know who that patient is. We often are the ones who operated on them, you know, two, three, four, five weeks ago. And so there's so many occurrences that we had seen in the past where patient was getting an ultrasound. They didn't need the ultrasound. I just operated on them last week. I know what their anatomy is, right? And so it's really, again, it's just to streamline their care, expedite their care, and then allow us as the interventionist to reperfuse as quickly as we can. Who initiates the alert? Like, is it the ER? Say, say this patient comes to the ER. Is it the ER doctor who's like, oh yeah, there's an alert system? How does that work? And what if they forget about it? It's a mix. And so the triage in our emergency department, our main hospital, the triage is staffed by either one of the ER attending physicians or an advanced practitioner. And any of them, whomever's in the triage kind of area can sound the alert. If it so happens that they, let's say the frontline provider is unsure if it's acute limb and they curbside one of us, we have enacted the alert. Because the, the importance of the alert is to, again, to expedite the care. But as we're monitoring this prospectively, when it gets sent out through the paging system, it all also gives us that little reminder of, let's sure this patient is going into our research 
prospectively. Let's make sure we have eyes on them so that we can report on our clinical outcomes. And we've all embraced Sabine, the endo first approach. And so if their anatomy and their prior surgical history, if it allows for an endo approach, again, we're embracing that use of penumbra and the computer assisted vacuum thrombectomy. And similar to what their stride data showed at 30 days, you know, with the stride data showing a limb salvage of 98%, you know, we've seen the same things. You know, we have data, we've had this in place for a little over a year now, and we've seen and reported amputation-free survivals in hospital of 96% at 30, 30 days of 95%, and even out to one year, we're a little over 80%. So our numbers, and I'm sure we're not the only hospital embracing this rapid approach, but we're the ones protocolizing it and reporting it and sharing our data. But our numbers and taking this rapid approach and this rapid debulking and utilizing the best available technology, which we confidently believe is the Penumbra Bolt 7 system, has led to outcomes far superior than historical numbers. It's impressive. I mean, it's it, it's obviously successful. I mean, it's not an established, you know, stroke and STEMI are so established in, in cardiology and, and uh, neurointervention. I mean, how did you get this, like, this is like a new idea. It's very, you know, creative. How did you implement it? I mean, that, that, that's the thing. How did you get buy-in from the ER? I find that must have been a pretty hard task to do. Creating the protocol was a several-month process and naturally it had to be a very collaborative effort. And so for better or for worse, as we were the only ones treating the acute limb patients, we didn't have to get buy-in from other specialties, right? So we didn't have to get the IR docs or the IC docs to go along with the protocol because they weren't treating these patients upfront anyway. But it did take some education and a lot of discussion with the emergency department. And so this was not created due to a lack of knowledge or success of the ER. Our ER physicians are fantastic. And we've we've looked at, I call their their batting average, right? We've looked in this last year of what they're, you know, when they call the alert, how successful are they? And they're spot on. It's not a hundred percent, right? But but they are really good at detecting the acute limb patients. And so this was not to step on their toes or take their decision making away from them. But this, again, this was driven from stroke and STEMI and trauma and these alert systems that are well-established nationwide of rapid diagnosis, expedient management. And this is one of these principal things in acute limb that time does matter. And so it was a lot of education. It was a lot of collaborative discussion about who could enact the alerts or what does it mean when this happens. And it took some convincing from the emergency physicians because- as the frontline providers, there'd be times where they were a little gun shy and they were a little fearful of, well, I don't want to sound an alert and be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't see that for sure. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Call it. We would rather have you call and, and we decide that it's not correct than to miss it or delay it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I bet administration loves it too, because I mean, in this day and age of turnaround time and, you know, the ER wants to triage this patient, go on to the next, right? This is like great because some of these patients can just be sitting there for a long time in the ER and waiting for a diagnosis. It sounds like you got your imaging, 
you got your team and you're ready to go and take the patient and admit them to uh, very quickly with this program. I know it's not true, but I like to think that all practitioners follow evidence-based guidelines in medicine. But evidence does speak to all levels in a hospital, we, whether it's the frontline provider or the administration. And in developing the protocol, Sabine, we showed them, here's what our amputation rates have been yearly. Here's the percentage of patients that are requiring amputations due to acute limb. And here are the errors we've seen in their management, you know, time from admission to vascular consult per se. And you show the hospital administration, here's the daily cost of someone who requires an amputation, what their total cost of care is. And with a protocol like this, again, learning from stroke and STEMI, if we can shorten the time to diagnosis and shorten the time to treatment and decrease the length of stay, be it in the intensive care unit or the surgical ward, it's at a benefit to everybody. So that a benefit to the patient, it's at a benefit to the hospital system. You know, we're in this age of healthcare where all hospitals seem to be overwhelmed all the time and patients just keep getting more ill and health healthcare gets more fragmented. And so we made a really compelling argument from an evidence standpoint, from a financial standpoint, and from a service standpoint to the patient. Yeah. And like you said, uh, a lot of these patients have prior intervention. I, I think we're getting better and better doing interventions. And, and getting people to keep their leg for longer and longer, that we're going to be seeing more and more and more acute limb ischemia, you know, because essentially we've kept these legs longer than we did five years ago. Has there been anything, you know, obviously in stroke, we have AI programs now, uh, like Viz. Uh, in aortic work, I don't know if you've tried out the, the Viz aorta um, and other programs too. Do you think there's a role here where, you know, they can combined with clinical diagnosis and, and, and combined with your limb alert program? I think acute limb ischemia is one of those areas in vascular that's in critical need of a reappraisal. The Rutherford, the Rutherford system is fantastic. It is a great clinical diagnosis and it is absolutely correlated to outcomes, but we should evolve our thinking, right? And that's what we're trying to do as part of the protocol is monitoring those preoperative markers, be it troponins, the other inflammatory markers. LDH, CRP, CPK levels. And I think in a prospective study and protocol like our own, or future randomized trials, which are desperately needed for acute limb, we can add in and pepper in all these other variables to get a much more complete picture of what an ischemic patient really is, regardless of Rutherford class. And I think it's in that setting, like to your point exactly, like we already have for stroke and we have it for aortic the more information you have, the more applicable an automated AI-based engine can then be to help you define outcomes. So I, th I think absolutely, you know, we have the tools, we have the technology, the modern techniques with endovascular are really changing the landscape of how we treat these patients. It's then kind of incumbent upon us as the practitioners to Again, playing chess, not checkers. Think forward, how can we use this data and this technology to then even further better our outcomes? But your point uh, with the increasing number of patients with failed interventions uh, rings true, right? In, you know, we're in this era of vascular where best CLI and basal and these randomized trials are debating how we treat the chronic limb-threatened ischemic patient, CLI. And we're embracing more endo approaches for all states of disease. I hate to say it, but I say it to all my patients. Nothing we do is a cure. You know, we're we're buying time 
and inevitably that treatment, that therapy is going to fail at one point and you hope for the patient's sake that you catch it acutely or that if they don't catch it acutely, that it doesn't lead to an amputation. Well, if any AI company is listening right now, like Viz, or I should definitely talk to to Dr. Bailey here uh, because I think I would love I would love I love how you've created this system at your at your hospital. I mean, it's way more advanced than I think ninety percent plus community physicians are practicing. I know if I had an acute limb, I'd like to be treated at the University of South Florida. <laughs> If it was my own leg. <laughs> so so I gave grand rounds when at the university a couple of years ago on acute limb ischemia and I entitled it acute limb ischemia dot 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 not another cold leg. That's how most of us see it. You know, it's it's always that console that comes in at nine, ten o'clock at night, two in the morning, residents call you, they tell you it's a cold leg. You know immediately what you're what you're in store for that night. So if we can protocolize the approach to these patients, expedite their care, makes it easier for us as practitioners, makes it a little less burdensome to try and get labs or heparin or other things done if it's standardized. And I, I, I truly think we're at that point in the care of these patients where we have to embrace the modern endovascular approaches. You know, the, the stride data that just came out had a limb salvage rate at 98%. That's outstanding. And it's a it's a device, a technology that's embracing automated intelligence with their computer-assisted aspiration mode to really make it more efficient for us as the providers. And so newer technology like that, protocolizing how we approach these patients, and really giving as much care and attention to acute limb as we do to other facets of vascular care, or we're going to translate to long-term good outcomes and you know some change in the historical rhetoric. Definitely. I mean, you're right. We're we're the data and the stuff we're referencing before Stry and all this is 30 years old. I mean, there's it's like we're 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 working in 1990 and thinking, okay, like I mean, the landscape has changed. I, I, I'm looking forward to all this data that you're going to produce. Hopefully, maybe some standardized protocols that are updated. And get some more uniformity between all of us endovascular specialists to how we treat it. Because yes, there's a lot of ways to skin this cat. This uniformity is is tough. What about the future? Any anything you know about? You know, we, we've talked about the the computer assisted devices. Is there anything else on the horizon or in the future that you can see in this field? I think acute limb ischemia as a vascular and endovascular topic and disease state is lagging a little bit compared to other organ systems, right? Carotid disease has advanced, right? We've gone from traditional endarterectomy to several different ways to do percutaneous stenting, flow reversal, non, et cetera. Aortic disease has almost largely become endovascular, save, save for the patients in extremis or the anatomy that you can't custom build a device for, which is the rarity nowadays with our, the advanced technology and physician modified endographs and there's the ongoing debate in the chronic PAD realm of open versus endo and when is best. And right, depending upon which side of the pond you live on, the data supports one way or the other. And acute limb is lagging a little bit, right? To what we just spoke about, that randomized trials are three decades old using technology that is not inferior, but for many of us, you know, putting a lytic catheter in is not the first line or first thought we often have in treating these patients. 
I'd say it's become more of an adjunct than anything. And what's really needed with acute limb ischemia sabim is a new randomized trial. You know, you look you look back at the randomized trials, be it style or topaz, and they were all flawed. They no no one of them was a true open versus endo approach. You know, how how can a trial claim it's a direct comparison of open versus endo when the endovascular arm, fifty to sixty percent of them, ended up having an open revascularization, right? And and or excluding embolus as a source of embolism in your randomized trial, or limiting to a single treatment. So I think in the horizon, the next five to seven years, that's where we should be headed. I know our institution with our protocol and other institutions around the, the country who who have embraced this endovascular first approach, we are eager to do that. We are combining data sets, combining our recent modern endovascular experience, embarking on fast track protocols, prospectively studying in our case, specifically the Bolt 7 device, to look at that as a first or definitive adjunct for acute limb. And this is all this swell, right? This wave that is about to crest is all building supportive data to then doing a supported multi-center randomized trial. That's where we should be headed. Well, that's great. I mean, I encourage all of our listeners, if you're thinking about starting a limb alert program to reach out to Dr. Bailey here. I know I'm, I'm going to probably ask you some more questions offline and everything because I'd love to love to get this going in my program. So Joe, thanks for being on the show. That was that was really great. A lot of information and really enjoyed having you on. Well Sabine and to Back Table Podcast, thank you kindly for the invitation. You know, this is something I feel passionate about, something that all of us, regardless, especially as interventionalists, we have to manage, whether we want to or not. And so the more thoughtful, the more direct, more protocolized, more efficient we can be will naturally lend to better outcomes for our patients. So I really appreciate the opportunity to share this with you all. Absolutely. You're doing awesome work, man. Keep it up. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 